Well, please grab your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15 is where we'll be today. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which, you also, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast to the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. Father, we thank You for Your Gospel. There is such profound simplicity in this good news, and yet it reaches to the very depths of our soul. God, we thank You that this is Your good news. This is good news that has been entrusted through each generation to those servants whom You've chosen to carry forth the Word of the gospel, the Word of the kingdom, the message of life and hope and peace and joy to all who believe. We thank You that we are a part of Your kingdom work in the world that here in the year 2022, we are united together in our spirits by this gospel. You've made us brothers and sisters. As we sang earlier, you've made us a kingdom and and priests to you to reign with your Son. What an amazing work you're doing through this simple yet utterly profound message. God, give us a deep appreciation, a deep heartfelt gratitude, a wondrous thankfulness in response to the gospel, that today as we look into Your Word, we would understand more and more about who You are and who we are and how our relationship with You has been totally changed for the better because of Christ. Give us such a view, we ask. And please don't allow me to stray one way or the other or to get in the way of Your Word, but Lord, make Your Word so clear to Your people today, and we all ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's talk about how truth is transmitted from person to person. In the first two verses of our passage today, we see how truth goes from one person to another and even to another. You'll notice that the first word, at least if you're using the New American Standard Bible like me, the first word of the chapter is now. Now. Paul is saying, I'm pivoting in the conversation. Through chapter 14, he's been talking about how churches are to order themselves, how churches are to be regulated in the exercising of spiritual gifts, how there is to be order and peace and harmony and unity. All things are to be done for edification in the church. We, we spent a lot of time on that. And now Paul is saying, let's revisit the absolute basic, the fundamental, the core, whatever metaphor, whatever phrase, whatever term you want to use, let's revisit the gospel. Now, I make known to you, brethren, the gospel, Paul says. Paul has arrived at a point of reminder, making known afresh to the Corinthians this good news. And this is very appropriate for the Corinthians because many of them were not living in accordance with this message that they had believed and received, or at least some of them had. And as Paul goes into recounting this message, he first talks about how this message was transmitted from him to them. He gives us a formula for how truth is transmitted in evangelism. And you'll notice the first thing in chapter 15, verse 1, is the preaching of the gospel. Now, I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached. I preached to you. Now, this is a word that many people want to avoid having prescribed to them. I I don't want to preach at you. You'll hear that from time to time. 
or, or you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to preach to you. Well, preach is a good word. You see here, Paul wore that word proudly. It was a badge of honor. I preached this to you. This word is, in the original language in the Greek, it means to proclaim good news. Who wouldn't want that word prescribed to them? I proclaimed glad tidings to you. I communicated good words to you. It doesn't mean to shout. It doesn't mean to scream. It doesn't mean to condemn. That's not what this word means. So often we associate those things with that word. This word means to proclaim goodness, to share, to declare glad news. And this is the priority of each and every Christian. We've been studying through the book of Romans in our Sunday school class, and we talked about in chapter 10, based on the Word of God, how important it is to be a part of God's program of getting the message out because how beautiful are the feet that bring good news. How beautiful are a preacher's feet. I won't show you mine today, but you get the idea. It's a good thing to preach. It's a good thing. And I want us to see how this is the priority of each one of us in the book of Acts. We're going to go to Acts, well, maybe this will be the only time we turn there, but let's just go there together. Acts chapter 5, Acts chapter 5, verse 42, and we're going to look at a few passages between chapter 5 and chapter 8. But let's see how this is the priority of the disciples of Jesus Christ to preach, to proclaim good news. The last verse of Acts chapter 5 It says, every day in the temple and from house to house, they, meaning the apostles, kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Isn't that great? They just kept right on focusing that Jesus is the Messiah. They're going to the Jews and they're proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. That's a a good duty to have to preach Jesus. Let's go to chapter 8. We'll see that it continued even when they went outside of Israel. Acts chapter 8, we'll start at verse 4. Acts 8, 4. Persecution has come to the early church, and they're scattered, but the mission hasn't changed. Even though their location has changed, their mission hasn't changed. Acts 8, 4. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the Word. Their priority maintained through this persecution. Their task, their duty, what was on the forefront of their mind remained the same no matter where they were, whether they were at home, quote-unquote, in Jerusalem and the surrounding area, or they were sent out to the remotest parts of the earth. Their priority was to preach the Word, to preach Jesus. Still in chapter 8, look down at verse 25. Acts chapter 8, verse 25. It says, so when they had solemnly testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they started back to Jerusalem and were preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Even in the villages of the Samaritans, these apostles converted Jews to the Samaritans. And you know that background a little bit, right? Jews and Samaritans didn't exactly see eye to eye on many things. They didn't have the same bumper stickers on their car. And they went through the villages of Samaria, and to the Samaritans they were preaching the gospel. But this isn't just a group activity. You know, Acts chapter 8 is where we get this amazing encounter with the Ethiopian eunuch. And as Philip is talking to him, let's see what the Scripture says. Drop down to verse 35. Philip, one-on-one with the Ethiopian eunuch, It says, then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning from this Scripture, which was Isaiah, he preached Jesus to him. Even one-on-one, in the quietness of, of being on the side of the road, the Christian's duty is still to preach. Now, again, it's not screaming and shouting and condemning and kicking and throwing things or whatever. All these things that the world wants to associate with the word preaching. It's proclaiming good news. And how beautiful it is when it happens in those quiet moments. How beautiful it is when it's Philip and an Ethiopian eunuch, and he says, how can I understand this? 
Someone has to explain it to me. And Philip says, let me preach to you. Let me preach. And he's just proclaiming the Word of God. He's proclaiming Jesus Christ. This is the priority of every Christian, to get the Word out, the Word of the Lord, the Word of the Gospel. Back to 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, I preached this to you, the gospel. He says it explicitly, not a vague term. He's saying, I preached the gospel to you. And we see the second part of this transmission after preaching. The next step is that they received. So there's the communication of the gospel, which is preaching, and then a response to the gospel, which is receiving. As the message is proclaimed and as the message is heard, it's taken in with a reception, Scripture says, receiving. What does the gospel demand? What does the gospel demand? Well, we're seeing here it demands a reception, a reception. And that's defined by resting in the finished work of Christ. It's defined by believing, trusting in what Jesus has done on our behalf. You're receiving Jesus Himself. You're receiving what He has done. That is what Paul says is the gospel. That's what's so good about the good news. It's not a fresh list of to-dos. It's not a duty that you must complete as a means to salvation. It's a word that says it is done, and it's to be received with full trust and full faith. And we have a, a great record. A, a lot of the churches in the New Testament, the letters that Paul wrote, we don't have a ton of, of information, but we have a great record of the Corinthian church. And even if you just go back in the same letter, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, just go back a few pages, we see what Paul's goal was when he was among them. His goal wasn't to get them to be baptized. Remember when Paul says, I thank God that I baptized none of you? and he gave a couple of exceptions. But his goal wasn't to get them baptized. His goal wasn't to get them to take on some new dietary law. Paul's goal was not to get them to do anything but then to receive Jesus. That's the only goal that Paul had in mind. Look at 1 Corinthians 2, verse 2. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Now, did the only thing he ever talked about was the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Was that the case? Well, no. He talked about all kinds of things. He was there for 18 months. But what was the overarching goal? What was his priority among the Corinthians? And what was the priority as the disciples went out through the Samaritan villages? There was a priority that you tell them about Jesus. Not only who He is, but what He's done. Not just that He is the Christ, that's what Paul says here in chapter 2, verse 2, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, but also what He has done, Him crucified, that He died on the cross in our place for our sins. He is to be received. His work is to be received. And as Paul was there those 18 months in Acts chapter 18, it gives us the first several verses of Acts 18, it gives us some more information about what Paul was doing there. It says he was teaching the Word for 18 months, and the priority the whole time was to lift up the person and work of Jesus Christ. The response to the gospel must be what Paul says here in chapter 15, verse 1. The gospel must be received. Jesus and His finished work must be received. You are not a Christian if you have not received the gospel. You're not a Christian if you haven't received what Jesus has done on your behalf. Jesus is to be received. And in our evangelism, when we're, when we're telling people about what Jesus has done, it's very appropriate to ask, will you receive Him today? Not just to say it and walk away, but to finish by saying, will you receive Him? Do you receive this message? Will you trust and believe today, even right now? That last hymn that we sung before I came up, Grace Greater Than All Our Sin, I was trying to find that hymn this week. I didn't know that was the hymn I was trying to find. I know all the words to that hymn, 
But I was thinking there is a hymn that says, today, and it ends a stanza, today. And I couldn't find it. I grabbed our hymnal. I was flipping through and I couldn't find it. Thank you for <laughs> finishing with that. And, and it also says in that song, will you this moment His grace receive? What an appropriate question to ask. His grace is to be received. It's to be preached, and it's to be received. And then there's a, a third element to this. The gospel is preached, it says. The gospel is received. And then it goes on to say, in this gospel you also stand, by which you are also saved, verse 2, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. There's the communication of the gospel, which is preaching, the response to the gospel, which is receiving, and now there's new life with the gospel described, which is standing saved, standing saved before God. But before we get into standing and being saved, we have to address this condition that's put here, that little two-letter word, if. You're saved by the gospel if you hold fast. Some people will turn to a passage like this and say, you can lose your salvation. You can lose your salvation because if you stop holding fast the Word, the salvation that you once enjoyed slips through your fingers and you've dropped it. God saves you, but then He puts it on you to maintain your salvation to the end, some might say. Well, does this mean that you can lose your salvation? I don't think it does. And let me start by saying that this type of wording isn't unique in New Testament theology. It's not unique to Paul. Colossians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, Paul gives a similar type of description of our salvation. In Colossians 1, 22, it says, Yet He has now reconciled you in His fleshly body, talking about Jesus, through death, in order to present you before Him holy and blameless and beyond reproach, if, there's our word again, if indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. You are reconciled, Paul says, if indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast. Even earlier in the letter of 1 Corinthians, Paul was giving the analogy of boxing and running. You remember that in chapter 9? I box not as one who beats the air, but I run the race and I run to win unless I myself should be disqualified. That's some strong language from Paul about his own salvation. Well, what are we to make of these things? Let me perhaps help to shape your perspective on this. Let me give you a paradigm through which you can view such conditional-sounding statements in Scripture. When Paul writes, you are saved if you continue on until the end, Paul is not giving a means to salvation. He is not saying being saved is way on the other end of your life. It's way down there. And you will be saved if you go through this life and make it there by holding on to what you're supposed to hold on to. But instead, Paul is talking from the perspective of assurance and saying, you are saved. It is confirmed that you are saved if you do indeed hold fast until the end because everyone who has been saved will. This isn't a means to salvation. It's a confirmation of salvation. This isn't a means to obtaining some sort of security at the end of your life. It's evidence that you are secure in Christ because all of those that Christ holds, hold on to Him. There is not one that God is holding on to who will slip away, but every single one that God holds on to, holds on to God. And what confuses this in our lives, you see this at the end of verse 2, what confuses this in our lives is that there are some who believe in vain. You will be saved if you hold fast to the end, unless you believed in vain. And so we get a blend of people in the church, in the visible church, those we know and perhaps we've even baptized, 
those that we've seen in our church services. We get a mix of people who believe for a time, it seems, and then they fall away. Well, what Paul is saying here is not that they lost their salvation, it's that their belief the whole time was in vain. It was a vain belief. It was an empty, it was a hollow belief. Their belief had no effect because it wasn't real. And they're falling away, they're they're stopping, they're ceasing to holding on to Christ was evidence that Christ never grabbed hold of them. Vain belief is not a genuine belief. It's not that genuine, simple faith. But it's a faith that's absent of vital elements, whether it's something in the heart or something in the mind. Perhaps the person believed, but that person never had the whole gospel. Perhaps that person believed, but that person never really truly believed, as Scripture talks about, someone truly giving their life over to Christ, a full trust in Jesus. Vain belief lacks some vital element, and it will always prove itself over time. When someone believes in vain, it will show itself in due time. And its prime evidence is that someone doesn't hold fast to the Word. You remember the parable, I'm sure, of the soils that Jesus gave us. And the seeds were dropped on these four types of soil that He describes. And the seed is the Word of God, Jesus teaches us. And in some of these soils, the seed did actually spring up, but it was just for a time. There were some where it sprung up and it was choked out by the weeds. The plant was choked out and it died. It was the cares and concerns of this world. There's another type where the plant did spring up, but as soon as the sun came out, it scorched it and it died because it had no depth of soil. Jesus says, when persecution came because of the Word, those people fell away. They had vain belief. Now, for a time, wasn't there great evidence that they were a true plant? Yes, for a time. But also in time, didn't it reveal itself that their belief was in vain? Yes. And we know this. We see it all the time. I mean, we're still in January. There are some people who are still going to the gym, (laughs) and they won't be going much longer. But they got their gym membership, and they've been going, and this is going to be the year. They paid for the membership. They're going to do it. And then comes the fourth week of January into February. Perhaps they make it all the way to spring, but once that sun comes out and it gets warm, priorities get rearranged. And this isn't a a great correlation, but I think you get the spirit of it. There are many people who are very excited about Jesus for a season. Some of them even made Him their New Year's resolution. I'm going to go to church in 2022. This is the year. It all changes. But give it time. Give it time. And vain belief will always show itself. And so Paul is here saying, you are saved by the gospel if you hold fast the word which I preached to you. This is the doctrine of perseverance of the saints. Anyone who is a saint of God, anyone who has been born again will persevere. That person will finish the race, and that person gets zero credit for finishing that race because it's a work of God. It's God's work in securing that person and carrying that person all the way to the finish line just as it was when that person was initially born again. Show me a person who ever caused himself to be born, and I'll show you a person who's caused himself to be born again. They don't exist. It's a work of God. And God says that whenever we believe, we are sealed with His Spirit until the day of redemption. He's given us a time frame. No one can break that seal. All who are in God's hand are secure. They cannot be removed. And so we understand that those who are truly saved do stand. There's our word at the end of verse 1. They stand. They're fixed. They're established through faith in Christ alone and certainly There were many true believers in Corinth. At the very beginning of the letter, you may forget Paul's 
Paul speaking well of them at the beginning of the letter, though he really wasn't speaking too well of them like he did with the Thessalonians and Philippians and others. But all the way back in chapter 1, Paul said, you have been enriched in Christ. You have been confirmed innocent in Christ. We haven't gotten too many encouraging words like that since that passage, but he said it. He opened the letter that way. And those who are born again, those who have been saved by Jesus Christ are enriched, are fixed, are confirmed innocent. They are established through faith in Him. And they're saved, beginning of verse 2. They are saved. They've been totally rescued. And this isn't just their soul. It certainly includes their soul. Right now, their souls have been refreshed, renewed by the work of the Spirit. They are new creations right now. But something that Paul's going to get into in this chapter is they're also saved in physical body too. Their bodies now belong to God in a sense that He's going to renew their physical bodies. It's this chapter where we get the phrase, this mortality will put on immortality. This corruptible will put on incorruptible. And so when he says saved here, let's not just think our immaterial, our soul or our spirit, Let's also think our whole body. We are rescued, redeemed by God, and there's coming a day when we will be totally through and through renewed because of the gospel. And this is all because of the sovereign work of God. Before we transition to verse 3, I want to read to you this quote from MacArthur's commentary. He says, Our holding on to Him is evidence that he is holding on to us. A professing Christian who holds to orthodox doctrine and orthodox living and then fully rejects it proves that his salvation was never real. Such a person does not hold fast the word because his faith is in vain. It was never real. He cannot hold fast because he is not held fast. But for those who do hold fast, we have this promise that we're saved, and that we're standing because God is holding fast to us, isn't He? If salvation was, here it is, you hang on to it. Raise your hand if you would keep it. I'm not that bold. I hope you're not either because this is a work of God. It is all of grace, isn't it? So, you might be thinking, okay, well, that's all well and good, but what is, what is this gospel? What's the content of the gospel? We've been talking about the gospel, we've been talking about the effects of the gospel, but not yet have we defined the gospel. Well, before we get into the content and the definition of the good news, there's something else to see. Look at verse 3. Paul says, "'For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received.'" Let's pause there, and I have to be very careful because I could spend two days talking about this phrase, but I won't. Okay. Uh, I will stick to my notes. The content, the first thing we need to recognize is that the content of this message, the gospel message, is of first importance. Perhaps your translation says, first of all, I delivered to you, first of all, what I also received. Well, when we hear these terms, first of all, or first importance, our mind should, should think how Paul considered this to be a priority. Why would you tell someone something first of all? Well, because it's first, because you have to have it first, because it's the foundation for everything else. It's primary. And what Paul is saying here is, I gave you what is a first order doctrine. I gave you what is first in the process of learning what it means to be a Christian. And to help grasp this idea, you can think about being on an airplane and For whatever reason, the plane starts going down. If you're a Christian and you're sitting next to somebody and you're sitting in the plane and you want to say to that person, you want to say to the whole plane something as the final words that they will hear, I hope that you're not going to say, let me show you an end times chart. Here's the first thing that'll happen and then this, pilot, can you spare me 15 more minutes? If a plane's going down, if someone just has moments to live, what is the thing that you share? It's going to be the most important thing that you hold on to. It's the most important thing you believe. It's the most pressing item. 
that you could ever tell anyone else. And if you're a Christian, that better be the gospel. If you're a Christian, it better be the good news of Jesus Christ. A message that's so simple, and you can say it very quickly, yet it absolutely changes lives, doesn't it? So when we think of first importance, as Paul describes it here, we need to think of when the plane's going down, what is it you say? That is what is of first importance. And it is critically important that you have a biblical paradigm in the way that you regard the doctrines of the Christian faith. I hope you, you, you all know that I'm excited about this topic. It's a thing I talk about a lot, and I think this is one of the primary evidences in the Bible that there is an order to the doctrines that we hold to. We believe many things, but not all things are of first importance, are they? That's, if you're ever a part of a group that says that, you're probably in a cult. That's what cults do. Nothing is secondary. Nothing is left to personal conviction. Everything is primary. Everything is of first importance. But that's just not the case. There are certain doctrines, and especially the gospel as we consider it, that are far more important than other things. If you have a view of that you're really fired up about, about the Nephilim in Genesis, whether they're offspring of angels and, and uh, women or something else, if you say that is just as important as the gospel, you're getting it wrong. You don't say that on the, on the airplane that's about to crash. The gospel, Paul says, is first of all. It's one of those doctrines that transcends our individual interpretive methods. It's one of those doctrines that all Christians agree on. Isn't this amazing? Think about all the things Christians disagree on. There's a long list. But we all agree on this. It's what makes us Christians. It's why we're Christians. We believe the gospel. It transcends any type of, any type of study that we do to draw our own conclusions about all kinds of doctrines. It transcends all of that because it is abundantly clear in the Word of God what the gospel is. Now, I do want to say that more than just the gospel is definitional to Christianity, what we believe about Scripture, what we believe about morality, what we believe about the ordinances that we observe in church, these types of things. There are lots of things that are definitional to Christianity. Some people say Christianity is just the gospel. No, they're wrong. They're wrong. The Trinity probably isn't something that you explain in many gospel presentations. But if you take away the Trinity, do you have Christianity? No, you do not. So there are things other than the gospel that are definitional to Christianity, but we recognize among all of those things, the gospel has the primary seat. The gospel is most prominent. That's where it all begins. There are some doctrines that are secondary in nature. They're a deduction that we've made tying different Scriptures together. Those doctrines aren't gospel. They're important, and we should be passionate about them, but they're not gospel, and they're not even primary. And there are even more doctrines that exist based on our convictions. In chapters 8 through 10 of 1 Corinthians, we talked about meat offered to idols and the different convictions that exist among Christians. That has to do with our conscience and how God works on our conscience. And those aren't the gospel. Those aren't definitional to Christianity. And yet, there are these doctrines that exist that transcend any interpretive method, any conscience issue that you have. It transcends all of that. And the gospel is one of those doctrines. This defines what Christianity is. The gospel and all of those doctrines that are foundational to our faith. And Paul here says that they're not original to him. You see in verse 3, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Now, all of these amazing truths that God has shared with us originate with God, don't they? He's the originator. But down through each generation, they're passed on. And Paul is here saying, he received the gospel. 
And you can read about that in the book of Acts. And upon receiving the gospel, now he has shared it with the Corinthians who have also received. And that's the duty of the Christian, to receive the gospel and then go out and proclaim the gospel. The gospel is the start of the Christian life. And now Paul gives us the content of the gospel. What is it that he delivered to the Corinthians? Well, first of all, as we look through these verses, how about I, how about I read them and then we'll go back. I delivered to you as of first importance, verse 3, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Okay, so here we go. Here's the gospel, the content of the gospel. The first thing I want you to notice is in verse 3, that little word, sins. Sins. The content of the gospel must include a teaching on sin. Christ didn't die randomly. Christ didn't die purposelessly. He died because of sins. And the first thing you need to know when it comes to understanding the gospel is that we all have a sin problem. Each one of us has a problem because of our sin that separates us from God. We've committed offenses against the eternally holy God. We have transgressed the commands of God. And this is inclusive of all people, all people of all times, not one person besides the incarnate Son of God, has escaped this problem. And it's essential. If you're describing the gospel to somebody or someone asks you what you believe, it's essential that we confess this, that we are sinners. We have a problem, and we cannot fix our problem. We have, we have this separation between us and God relationally. We can't commune with God because of our sin. And if you don't understand that point, if you miss that point, if you, if you drop that point, you miss the whole gospel. If you lose the sin problem, the bad news, you have no good news. It's gone. And so, we must recognize that we are sinners and that all sin is worthy of death. We're going to talk about in a moment what Paul says here, that Christ died for our sins. You see that? Sin requires death. There had to be death. Our sin is punishable by death. And these aren't mistakes that we've made. These aren't bad judgment calls. This isn't just mere foolishness. This is intentional, willful transgression against our Maker. It's sin. We must call it sin. That's the first element. The second element that we don't want to pass over is that Jesus is the Christ. See in verse 3, He refers to Jesus as Messiah, Anointed One, Christ. Jesus wasn't just a random person. Jesus certainly wasn't an ordinary person. Jesus was the promised Messiah, the incarnate Son of God, the Christ. He was the promised serpent crusher, going back to Genesis 3, the one who will crush the head of the serpent, Jesus Christ. And He came with a totally unique nature. When Jesus was born into this world, He was born of a virgin. We just had Christmas. This is fresh in your mind, but it's also essential to our confession as Christians. Jesus was conceived miraculously, and He was born of a virgin because He is God. He entered this world sinlessly, and He maintained perfect deity as He entered into this world. Isn't that astounding? Isn't that so remarkable that Jesus was truly God and truly man walking the earth? Not 99%, 1%, not 50-50, none of that. 100% God, 100% man, truly God, truly man. He is the one true God of the universe, Jesus Christ. There are a lot of religions out there that claim Jesus, and they'll want to say that 
they're just like us because they also believe in Jesus. Have you heard this? <laughs> well, what I like to do just to say, okay, well, let's see, because I'll go here and let's see if you, you go there with me. Jesus is the one true God of the universe. Then I step back and say, okay, you coming with me? That's a big statement, my friends. That's a very big statement. It's one thing to say Jesus is God, and what you really mean is He's a God. It's one thing to mean Jesus is divine, meaning that, yeah, He, he was used by God to do amazing stuff like Elijah and others. It's a great thing to say Jesus was a great teacher. You know, there are lots of great teachers. But to say Jesus Christ is the one true God of the universe, that's a dividing line, isn't it? Very important that we recognize the unique nature of Jesus, that He is the Christ and all that that means. We see here, too, thirdly, that He died, that He died, and He died in our place for our sins. He died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and He was buried. 1 Peter 2.24 is a great verse. You need to have that verse reference memorized. Jesus, He Himself, bore our sins in His body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by His wounds you were healed. Where were our sins when Jesus died? In His body on the cross. He bore our sins and the punishment for that sin. And it's very important that we understand this punishment aspect. In Romans chapter 5, verse 9, it talks about the wrath of God and how Jesus saves us from that. Romans 5, 9, much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. What was Jesus enduring on the cross? You could answer that a lot of ways. But the big umbrella term is the wrath of God. Jesus suffered the wrath of God in our stead as He was nailed to the cross. God's hatred for sin, the punishment for sin, was poured out onto Jesus Christ when He died for our sins. This is what the law demanded. This is what God's nature demands, sin being contrary to the eternal life that's wrapped up in God. Sin demands death because it's contrary to the very nature of God. And Paul mentions here in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 4, that he was buried. He mentions that he was buried to emphasize the fact that Jesus really did die. Some people can, can fake their death for a few minutes, but you can't fake a death all the way through a burial, can you? A burial really shows that that person has died. And he adds this phrase, according to the Scriptures. Based on the Word of God, Paul says, Jesus died for our sins. There are many places you could go. Isaiah 53 is one that often comes to mind. That's what that Ethiopian eunuch was reading in Acts chapter 8. Isaiah 53 talks about the servant who would come and suffer for other people's sins. Not that verse yet. A little too eager on the laptop. <laughs> it's the right chapter, wrong verse. He would suffer for our sins. He would bear our griefs. In Psalm 22, Psalm 22 talks about having his hands and his feet pierced. They've pierced me through, my hands and my feet, like dogs they've surrounded me. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Talking about the one who would come and suffer in our place. In Zechariah chapter 12, Jesus is referred to when it says, they will look upon him whom they pierced the one that they pierced. Jesus was to suffer the wrath of God for sin and die in our place for our sin. But it doesn't end there, does it? Verse 4, He was buried and He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. He rose again. He didn't stay dead. He didn't stay in the tomb, but He walked away from the grave with life. He was able to take up His life again. He was raised, 
And he walked away from the tomb because no one can take life away from the Son of God, can they? He was put to death in the flesh but made alive in the Spirit, 1 Peter 3 says. That he gave up his human body that he took on for our sake. He gave it up to be punished by the wrath of God, and yet he took it up for himself again. Proving that he is who he said he was. And now, of course, this chapter, chapter 15, is 58 verses that go on to emphasize this fact that Jesus rose again, and you will too. This chapter is all about the resurrection. It's the most important event because it validates all other events. <laughs> if you're going to look for a, a primary doctrine within primary doctrine within primary doctrine, it's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What is most prominent among all prominent doctrines? It's that Jesus isn't dead. Because that validates everything else. And notice here too, he says, according to the Scriptures. There are two main Old Testament passages. The first is Psalm 16. Psalm 16.10 says, You will not allow your Holy One to see decay. And in Acts chapter 2, Peter directly links that to Jesus Christ, saying Jesus is the fulfillment of that verse when He rose again. Now it's Isaiah 53.10, Logan. In Isaiah 53.10, it talks about the suffering servant will die. He will be crushed by the Lord. He will be put to grief. He renders himself as an offering, and you know offerings die. Yet, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in His hand. Isn't this an amazing verse? He will die as a guilt offering, but His days will be prolonged. You know what that's saying? Resurrection. Resurrection. But it's not just the Old Testament. <clears throat> Turn with me to the Gospel of Mark. Gospel of Mark chapter 8. In three consecutive chapters in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus prophesied His own resurrection. Mark chapter 8, verse 31, it says, He, Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Jesus taught them pretty explicitly what was going to happen, didn't He? He didn't do it once. Maybe turn a page over to chapter 9, verse 31, Mark 9, 31. This time we have a direct quote from Jesus. For He was teaching His disciples and telling them, the Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill Him. And when He has been killed, He will rise three days later. How about one more time? Chapter 10, verse 34. Chapter 10, verse 34. Jesus said, they will mock Him, talking about Himself, the Messiah. They will mock Him and spit on Him and scourge Him and kill Him, and three days later, He will rise again. When Jesus speaks, it's Scripture. Jesus here is speaking Scripture, and when He rose again, it was in accordance with His Scripture. According to the Scriptures, Jesus rose again. I love this quote that I came across this week from Robert Gramacki. Listen to this. The religions of the world are all based upon the lives and the teachings of their founders, but only biblical Christianity rests upon the death and resurrection of its Savior. That's good, isn't it? Our faith rests on the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so, the fifth and final element of the content of the gospel is that sinners are to receive this message by faith. They are to rest in the person and work of Christ alone. We had that word received back in verse 2. The, the message was to be received. But look down at verse 11, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 11. Paul here explicitly says it, "'Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believe.'" What's the response of the gospel hearer? To believe, to receive Jesus Christ by faith. What is man called to do? To place his trust in the perfect Christ alone. 
nothing else. Upon that moment of first true, genuine belief, a person is totally, irreversibly redeemed. That person is irreversibly reconciled to God. It is a total act of God. And in that moment, the God who drew that person to Himself gives new birth and gives a forever promise that no one can take away. You belong to Him when you believe. You become His child. You're adopted into His family. You've been given an inheritance, and He gives you the gift of His Spirit as a down payment. He gives you the family of His church, the brothers and sisters in Christ who proclaim His goodness until His return. He gives you the hope that this life isn't all that there is. He gives you the hope that you will enjoy Him forever, that He's making all things new and you'll be a part of it, that He's going to wipe away your tears as you enjoy Him for all eternity. He is the temple. He is the light. And He is your life. No one can take that from you. No government, no disease, no virus, no cares of this world, no sin on your part. Nothing can separate you from the love of God that you have in Christ. And if there's anything added to this message or anything taken away from the content of this gospel, it is a different gospel. There's a cemetery just here in town. I'll close with this. There's a tombstone in that cemetery. It has the saddest excuse for a gospel I've ever seen. It's just a little poem, and all it says is, He tried His best to pass the Father's test. That's not gospel. How about this? He never could have passed the Father's test, but in Jesus Christ, He found eternal rest. That's a better gospel. That's the true gospel. And may that be said of you on your tombstone, that you would be forever reconciled to Christ, holding fast to that word which was first preached to you. Let's pray. God, you are so good and kind, so full of grace and mercy. Encourage our hearts and build us up by the work of your Spirit, that we would be bold witnesses for you, that we would be encouraged holy ones, as you've called us, going about this life, representing you well as your ambassadors, loving you because you first loved us. Give us a sweet, sweet fellowship this day and in all the days ahead with your people and with your spirit. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.